This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and a Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, we're talking billionaires and the taxes they do or don't pay. Uh, Richard, last week, the tax records of the richest 25 American billionaires was leaked to ProPublica, which is an investigative journalism organization, which verified them and released them. And it looks like uh, this is a true IRS leak. Uh, Before we get to the headlines, I want to ask you about the legality and the morality of publishing this information. When asked about privacy concerns, ProPublica wrote, we have concluded that the public interest in knowing this information at this pivotal moment outweighs that legitimate concern. So, Richard, when does a person lose their right to privacy in the name of the public interest? Well, this is not a very small question, but this issue has come up many times before. And there is a peculiar disjunction that often takes place within the law, and it was this particular disjunction that ProPublica took advantage of. So way back when, there was a case called Pearson and Dodd, in which certain information was leaked to Drew Pearson, which was published, and it turned out that the people who were hurt wanted to basically say, you can't do it, it's an invasion of privacy. Uh, But what happened is the argument was that the government officials who keep the information are duty to keep it in, but any third party who gets it, even though they know that the information has been stolen or misappropriated, has a First Amendment right to sort of release it. And it was on that particular kind of case, uh, which I regard as terrible law, uh, that ProPublica relied. Why do I think it's a bad law? Is where you go back to the property rights cases, and the one thing that you know is if A steals property from B and then transfers that property to see and told C that this is stolen, the original owner could not only sue the thief, but can sue the purchaser because he's not what we call a good faith purchaser without notice of the defect in the title of what he got. And so I would protect from the First Amendment grounds people who publish information that was stolen if they were innocent of knowledge of the theft. But under no circumstances would I do it here. I regard this as essentially criminal. So what is it about ProPublica that gets you so annoying? It's the argument that instead of just relying on the fact that there's a glitch in the law which should be clicked, they sort of make themselves into honest adjudicators. And they say, well, we deem under these particular circumstances that the public interest in knowing this information outweighs the privacy interests associated with the people. Uh, But this is not a judgment for them to make. At the very least, it's a judgment for government to make. And the consistent judgments ever since the IRS has been put into place is that all the information that is received in a return is confidential and may only be used for limited purposes. That's a public judgment made by the government. And it's made for poor taxpayers and for rich taxpayers. And there is no principled reason why any private organization gets to say that those kinds of legal determinations are wrong. It's even worse than that, because what is, in fact, the kind of public information that you need? Well, they want to create the notion that there's a scandal of abuse in the United States and the way in which rich people are able to minimize lawfully or not the kinds of gains and receipts that they get uh, from the taxation under the Internal Revenue Code. Look, you can do this in a very simple way. Uh, You get out there and look at all of the stuff which is on public record, and then you say, you should ask the question, how much tax Jeff Bezos pays or Bill Gates pays? You don't need to release the returns, which has all 
all sorts of complicated information about particular transactions to say, I think rich people have this kind of money um, ought to be paying a larger amount of tax. And then you could make your substantive arguments as to whether it's a wealth tax, a change in the realization requirement, or a higher just general tax gains and so forth. Uh, you don't need to get this specific information to make it. So uh, their justification that it will improve the public debate is just pure fiction under these circumstances. The amount of abuse that's been happened, heaped on these people has been enormous. What it does do, in effect, is by taking this information out and releasing it, making it extremely difficult for counter-speech to take place, what they've done is they've skewed the particular debate. So I'm very down on ProPublica for engaging in this particular kind of activity. Uh, My attitude on the underlying merits has to do much more with the structure of the tax code than it does with the position of individual people. Always happy to talk about that with ProPublica, but I'm not prepared to talk with them about these returns. And I always make it a principled position that if information like this is illegally released, I will not read it. Fair enough. Let's let's get into some of the numbers um, and, and the actual statistics that they're releasing, because they, ProPublica has pushed this t- statistic of a true tax rate. And I want to get your opinion on this. It's equal to the amount of taxes a person paid divided by their change in wealth over a certain time period. And we looked at it this way. Uh, Warren Buffett's true tax rate is 0.1%. Jeff Bezos is 1%. Richard, what do you think about the framing of, of taxes paid in that manner? Well, I don't like that framing of, of the situation at all. And there are a bunch of different reasons why I don't. Uh, the first one is I think that in terms of trying to figure out how the social economy works, that income and wealth is actually a very bad predictor of how much you've taken out of the system. So suppose what we did is we switched this to a consumption tax and then try to figure out exactly what percentage of the wealth that they consume uh, do they pay in taxation. Uh, the amount that a rich person consumes, the amount that, that they have, is you are Jeff Bezos. I don't care what you do and how you wish to do it. You cannot and stay alive, engage in a situation which would allow you to spend even a million dollars a day of true consumption. You could buy artwork, but that's a consumer durable and it's not consumption. So all of these people, they get this money, but a huge amount of it then goes back into productive activities. And so my attitude is if very rich people have this money, they're going to make better investments than to give a random number of the United States government, let them invest it. And so long as the thing is not taken out of the commodity for consumption, I think in effect that it's perfectly okay. So I think in effect that for these particular purposes, income is a very bad measure. A second reason why it's a bad measure is that when these people start taking money out, where does it end up going? I mean, you take somebody like Buffett and, you know, they're just huge amounts of charitable contributions. So what they're saying is these guys have all of this appreciation and they never mention that there's a private solution out there where people have taken the pledge that they're going to donate 50% of their wealth upon death or at some earlier time to charity. And it's also the case that people do give huge amounts of charitable giving. I don't believe they subtracted any money of that particular sort out of any of these particular equations. I think what they just do is they look at the total amount that you earn and they assume that somehow or other nothing else really starts to matter. Charitable deductions, I think, are extremely important 
promises of charitable deductions are extremely important. The overall efficiency rate of having efficient investment done by private parties is extremely important. And all that the ProPublica form does is they're trying to create a kind of a, a resentment with respect to people who have greater wealth than their own. I, you know, I'm not a poor man. I don't want to plead poverty or anything of the sort. But I couldn't care the less uh, that these guys have a billion dollars. I've been fortunate enough to have meals with billion dollar people from time to time, as well as for many people who are a lot poorer. And my attitude about the people who have a billion dollars is they uh, put on their pants one leg at a time, they use a knife and fork like everybody else, and they can't possibly drink 10 bottles of wine and come away from the table sober. So it just doesn't really bother me um, in any way, shape, or form. And I think it would be one of the things that the, we should learn is that resentment towards other people creates all sorts of civic strife, but it doesn't do anything to produce any kind of useful good. So these billionaires, like you say, put put their pants on one leg at a time, just like the rest of us. But they do have more options available to them to, uh, to change how they t- pay taxes versus someone maybe who just has a regular job and only brings an in income with wages. Can you take us through um, how the wealthy avoid realizing capital gains, how they avoid taxes? And um, you mentioned a consumption tax, but is that is there more to it than that? Well, oh, the, the, the whole system of the tax code is really extremely complicated. Uh, and there are many kinds of forgivenesses that are given to wealthy people. Some of them are justified and some of them are not. Uh, so one of the things that we have in the Internal Revenue Code is a two-part test uh, for income. And the first part is, have you realized some kind of gain? And that's the realization requirement. Then there's something called the recognition requirement. Should you recognize this particular gain at this particular point in time? And the Internal Revenue Code has a very broad definition of what counts as the realization of income. And then it has some very large exceptions. And the question is whether or not these exceptions do or do not make kinds of sense. So to give you something, for example, is that when you take income, it's normally in the form of cash. But one of the first cases I had in my tax class, oh, back in 1966, was a case called Duberstein that had been decided a couple of years before, in which a gracious um, client gave his um, uh, business partner or his lawyer, doesn't remember which, an automobile. And the question of whether you have to take that into income. Or could you avoid tax on property and only pay it on cash? And that's the perfect case in which you want to basically require that guy to pay the uh, tax on that particular thing. Otherwise, the automobile is going to be depreciated down to nothing and you'll never collect anything on it. And you're not distorting any real market whatsoever because for the most part, only tiny amounts of compensation are given that way. When it comes to stock, it's again much more complicated. Uh, But by and large, I mean, there is this constant problem. You give somebody a chunk of stock, and it's certainly going to be a form of wealth. But if you tax it at that particular time, there's going to have to be a forced sale, uh, which would be very inconvenient for everybody, may reduce the value of the holdings and so forth. So what the Internal Revenue Code does is it develops very complicated but pretty sensible rules, which says, look, at the time you dispose of this thing, um, you're going to have to pay the gain on the particular tax. But if you're just holding it, we're kind of treating it like a consumption thing. And then when you sell it, well, we have to figure out ways to allocate the difference between ordinary income and capital gain. Uh, So the fair market value of those particular stocks or options at the time that they receive are compensation for services and the subsequent depreciation or depreciation probably capital fluctuation. So that's a way on which you could start to make those kinds of differentiations at work. Uh, There are other kinds of situations. For example, you have two companies and they want to merge in one form or another, and each of them have what we call low base 
price the stock, meaning they paid very little to this thing. And if they sold it, uh, they would have to pay a gain equal to the amount of cash that they got in or the fair market of the value of the property that they received, less the cost basis of the item. Uh, but if you swap two of these things around and in corporate form, this is not an appropriate case for a tax. And so we adopt what are called non-recognition provisions through um, reorganization provisions and like-kind exchanges, saying what happens is there's no reason when you change a corporate form to put a huge tax that forces a business uh, to liquidate its assets and its shareholders in difficulty. Just simply say, uh, when this new share is sold, it has the old basis, so you don't get any tax advantage other than the one that you always get with capital gains, which is to defer tax until the realization transaction starts to take place. And the Revenue Code has all of these kinds of provisions in it because it turns out they're just simply inopportune moments where whatever you gain by way of taxes is going to cost the economy more by the disruption of the way in which capital uh, investments and so forth are going to be made. And, you know, there are mistakes in these kinds of rules, to be sure. But for the most part, they're stunningly accurate. And if anything, you probably would want to stand the class of um, uh, swaps that are exempt from immediate taxation. Any stock-for-stock share swap, in my view, is, is just no reason to impose a tax. Wait till somebody takes cash out. But that's not the law, but I might make it. Now, there are rackets that can take place. And it's important to understand that these are not the things that are being talked about. Uh, but a racket for these purposes defined as follows, is you get a deduction in those cases where there is no economic loss. And then what you do as by way of a quid quo quo, if it works well, is you pay tax at the back end of the combination, even though there's no economic gain. And there have been many rules that involve that, of which the most important for these purposes is a rule which essentially allows you to depreciate borrowed capital. What that means is you buy a building for $100 and you borrow $90 on it and you have an equity of 10 And what they say is the building is all yours and you could depreciate it in a straight line fashion, $5 a year uh, for the next 20 years. And so you take the first years of depreciation and already that basically what you're saying is I have a $90 mortgage and I basically property is only worth $85. Well, it's not worth $85. It's probably worth $120 or $130. And so allowing the depreciation of borrowed capital is a mistake. And one ought to hold those deductions in suspense until the loan gets paid off. Now, what makes it even worse is that there are two other gimmicks that you can do with this thing. One of them is you can engage in swaps. And what happens is you find a charity which doesn't need tax deductions and somebody that does. And then what you do is you have all this borrowed property and there's an agreement legal under the current code which says that all of the deductions belong to the taxpaying party today and they have to make it up to the charity sometimes later. So what you do is you not only depreciate your borrowed property, but somebody else. Then when it comes to pay this stuff at death, what happens is it's a cheap step up in basis, meaning it's all forgiven. So what you do is if you basically invested $100, you could take $1,000 worth of deductions on this against other income, and then at death you pay zero. And so what you've done is you've basically beaten the system. 
that clearly ought to be changed. And the way in which you ought to change that is to make sure that the depreciations are not going to be allowed with respect to these disproportionate transactions and not going to be allowed below the amount of your investment. You hold the rest in suspense and it would kill the racket off. Nobody's talking about that, but that's the really kind of important thing to do. There are also situations where people engage in transactions where they manage to take losses in the domestic market and get their gains in some foreign market by a paper transaction. Those things are, again, should be substitutes are really difficult. And I mean, so doing that kind of thing is already part of the Internal Revenue Code, which is something that ProPublica just hasn't mentioned. And time after time, and I've worked on some of these cases, uh, you see people trying to pull one of these stunts, and the Internal Revenue Code invokes one of its sta- or do- service invokes one of its standard doctrine. This is a sham transaction. Uh, this is a form without substance transaction, and so forth. And they do a pretty good job of dealing with this. Uh, so what you're back with again is. Uh, the aberrant transactions, a couple of them are allowed, which should not be allowed. Many of them are caught. Uh, but in terms of the taxation of unrealized appreciation on a particular piece of property, it's a mistake to want to do that in my particular judgment, uh, because I think that the net social welfare effect is going to be negative out of those kinds of things, whether you're talking about very rich people or very poor people. And the way to understand these non-recognition transactions in exchange that doesn't force you to pay gain is it's a movement in the direction of a consumption tax. Of course, you're allowing income to be realized, but not to be recognized, which is a fundamental distinction. And what's so wrong about ProPublica is they simply do not give a systematic account of the way in which a well-functioning tax system ought to operate. Last question, Richard. I want to ask you about uh, something you you mentioned in your Defining Ideas column last week, which is that in President Biden's tax proposal, uh, he's he's proposing changing capital gains and dividends tax rates retroactive to April of this year. And I want you to take us through the logic of actually making taxes retroactive. I'm genuinely curious how it doesn't violate some form of ex post facto uh, that we have in the Constitution. Well, you're asking the right question, and a lot of eyebrows have been raised. But again, you know, these people, who put these things together know what the law is, and they think that they're on the right side of it. And so let me sort of disabuse you of something which uh, your instincts are right and the law is wrong. Very, very early on, it was held that ex post facto laws are only to be regarded as criminal offenses. So ex post facto is not going to cover civil situations, and you just get rid of the criminal penalties and you require people to report the taxes, uh, at least you're not caught by that. Retroactive taxes is then the other situation. And the usual norm that people have is that retroactivity is a terrible situation uh, because what it does is it judges you by a law which is not yet in place. And so what the government is trying to do is they're saying, look, we're not just imposing upon you. We're giving you notice about the fact that we're going to do this stuff. And then the question is whether or not that notice is sufficient. And the answer to that question analytically really ought to be no. Uh, because what's going on in this particular case is no different from a situation in which it turns out I say to somebody, you know, if you drive your automobile on a public street, I'm just going to confiscate it because I'm a government agent. And somebody's going to say, wait a second, uh, how can you possibly do that? Uh, streets are supposed to be open. I said, look, we gave you notice. You always had the option not to do it. And that's exactly what's at stake in this particular case. We always have the option not to sell your stock because they've given you notice. 
Now, what makes it really insidious is they're going to screw up the market in the short term. And then what's going to happen if it turns out that the statute does not pass, which seems to be likely with respect to the capital gains tax that's being proposed? You have effectively frozen people. You haven't gotten a law through, and yet there's no recompense for anything else. So the usual rule uh, with respect to this notion that notice gives you rights is to say, if you give notice, All it does is announce to the world that you can act like a thug. If the government wants to go give notice and make it clear, this is what you do. You tell somebody, look, we may take your particular piece of land. And if so, we're not going to compensate you for any improvement that you make on it in the next six years. And they never take it. So they've frozen the value. If the government wants to freeze the value, this is what it has to do. has to buy an option. Now, all of a sudden, the landowners are going to say, you know, uh, how much are you going to pay me? And, you know, if the government basically wants to offer tuppence, they're not going to accept it. If they want to offer a lot of money, they can. And then you could work out a deal because there are options like this, which exist in many, many markets. And what happens is you now put these things on the books in the proper fashion. What's happened is there's at least one case, a case called Carlton, in which the government played this stunt and they were allowed to undo transactions. Uh, but it's a different case from this one, at least in principle, for the following reason. Carlton was a situation in which people were given uh, huge um, benefits with respect to the the estate tax if, in fact, they paid it with shares of their own company in an ESOP, an employee self-ownership plan of one kind or another. And what nobody thought at the time was how this would operate. And so what people did who were employees, they went into the public market, bought shares, and then used them uh, to pay off their tax. And the government thought that was a racket because it forgotten in the original statute to limit the privilege only to shares that had been held in the ordinary course of business as an employee. And so they decided to take that back. They didn't make any adjustments for losses that happened when you relied on the statute. And the Supreme Court saw this as a legitimate use of a retroactive statute to deal with an abuse. Well, there's no abuse whatsoever that's taking place in the capital gains market. And so my argument would be that the Carlton case can be distinguished. Uh, We have no idea which way it will come out, and that's going to basically get you to the new Supreme Court. If these guys essentially follow the line that if the government could invent a bad reason to impose something retroactively, who are we to stop them, at which point the tax will be sustained? Or if they come back and say retroactivity is a really bad norm and you have to justify it specifically, you haven't shown the kind of abuse that took place in Carlton. This is just ordinary business transactions. What we're going to do is to strike it down. I think that the basic provision on capital gains is so counterproductive. It's an elective system. You start posing ordinary income tax on that stuff, you're going to kill capital markets outside of uh, pension funds of one kind or another. It's just beyond belief dangerous. And my guess is it won't go through. And what's going to happen is the markets, therefore, won't react to it. So it's a kind of a general note. Um, How do we try to figure out the consequences of the Biden program? Well, anything he could do by executive order, in my view, is a mistake, and he's almost always made them. But when it comes to legislative programs, right now, I think the stock market is held up and business is held up because there's the belief that uh, there are at least one or two senators, you know, Senator Christine Seminoff and uh, whatever, Joe Manchin, who are not going to go forward with this. They're not going to end the filibuster. So none of this stuff is going to get through. And then after the midterms, Republicans will regain the Senate because they won't have to fight Donald Trump and they'll probably regain the House, and that will put an end to the Biden agenda. Um, Well, if that turns out to be wrong, 
my guess is there'd be a precipitous drop in the particular market. And then we get this ultimate irony. Uh, there will be no gains of a capital nature to tax. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.